0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, just a quick reminder that the other people podcast is a listener supported podcast. If you like the show, if you listen and you want to support the show, you can do that over at Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's Patreon com slash ppl pod you can also support the show via PayPal. there's a PayPal link in the sidebar on the other people podcast official website that's otherppl.com Thanks okay let's start the show you are not alone. you have found other people
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: every stupid thing that a writer could do I've done. I think it's really beautiful. I Gee, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. you know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Hey everybody, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. <laughs> right. Welcome to the Other People Podcast. It's good to be with you. It is uh, Sunday night when I'm recording this in Los Angeles, California. This uh, episode is airing on Wednesday. I mention this because things are changing so rapidly... In the United States of America, in the highest reaches of our government, and in the media that covers it, that I don't know what's going to change between now and Wednesday. It could be monumental. Elizabeth L. Silver is my guest. She has a new book out, a memoir called The Tincture of Time. It is available now from Penguin Press. She and I will be in conversation in just a bit. Uh, I'm thinking about some things tonight. I'm thinking about the episode that I did in the immediate aftermath of the quote unquote election where I talked. I felt like, like I have not had the courage to listen to it again because I think when I recorded it, I recorded it. I was uh, shell shocked and emotional and I was trying to talk over politics and make sure I didn't say something in the heat of the moment that I would later regret and yet I worry that maybe if I listened, I would regret it anyway, because I feel like maybe I went too soft on uh, Trump and the people who voted him into office. It's complicated for me to try to evaluate how to respond to all this, but like, was I too soft? I haven't listened to it. I can only remember that I was just trying to I don't even know how to put it. Like view the thing from, uh, from the uh, stratosphere, you know, view it as if I were an alien. Be my best self when I talked about it, you know, not be filled with fear and anger, all that kind of stuff, you know, but right about now, knowing what I know, And knowing what I think, I know. Sort of not in the mood for niceties. So I, you know, and this is the other thing: am I too wrapped up in this? I cannot stop checking Twitter. (laughs) I cannot stop reading the news. I cannot. This is the most. This is by far the most arresting. The most. Troubling, the most addictive news narrative in my lifetime. What the fuck happened in 2016 in our election? What happened inside the Trump campaign? What happened between Trump and Russia? I think when the dust settles and we have some degree of historical perspective on this, and everybody has sort of spilled the beans, I think it's going to wind up being a story worthy of a 50-part Netflix series and uh, a Robert Caro-like biographical summation. I guess, like, like, you know, referring to his, like, what is it, four or five-part LBJ biography. And it's about the intricacies of what appears to be taking shape as the greatest criminal scandal in the history of the United States government—not an overstatement. The question is, you know, is is there going to be justice? Like, I don't know. Like, any this is what I keep telling my friends when I talk to them about this. Nothing would surprise me if Donald Trump were found wandering the streets of Washington, D.C. alone tonight at four in the morning, mumbling nonsense in his bathrobe with his pants soiled, (laughs) I'd be like, yeah, okay. If Donald Trump committed suicide in the Oval Office, wouldn't surprise me. If Donald Trump launched a nuke randomly, Wouldn't surprise me if Donald Trump stole away in his own private jet, not not Air Force One, but in in his own private jet with his entire family to the Soviet or to Russia. Wouldn't surprise me if Donald Trump were frog marched out of the White House or out of the clubhouse at one of his golf courses by the sergeant at arms. Wouldn't surprise me. If Donald Trump were to somehow pull the levers of power in his favor and start arresting journalists and imprisoning political dissidents and yank his allies in Congress in the direction of authoritarian kleptocracy in an official manner, making the United States a one-party country ruled by an insane person, wouldn't surprise me. There's a great essay, and I believe it's the New York Review of Books by Masha Gessen, who's been a great voice on this and a great perspective on this presidency and on the whole project that it entails. And uh, it's about the way that Donald Trump and people like him desecrate language and what that does to our reality. how they render words meaningless and they make things mean the opposite of what they mean and how that erodes our uh, democratic ideals, our ideas of what freedom and justice and things of that nature mean. I care about this stuff. I don't understand how somebody could be disengaged from this or taking on a disaffected posture. I have a friend. He, like, laughs at this. He's like, I wish I could get there. I was talking to him. I was texting with him. He's like, yeah, I just laugh at this. Did I talk about this already? What the fuck is that? I am so wound up about this. And to me, it feels entirely proportionate. If anything, I worry that I'm not wound up enough. Am I not marching enough? Am I not signing enough petitions? Am I not calling enough congresspeople? Am I not retweeting enough shit? Like, this is a five-alarm fucking fire in my mind. And I'll never understand how people voted for Donald Trump. I'll never understand it. I know that there are people who are desperate. I mean, I guess on an emotional level, yeah, I can compute how somebody might have made that leap. But, dear God, look at what we're dealing with. My sympathies are just strained. You know, it's like this is a very damaging thing that we are going through. And it's painful, you know, and terrifying. People who have, I don't know, you know, like I have kids, their future thinking about, you know, what kind of world they're going to grow up in. But even if you don't have kids, even if you don't really give a shit, you know, like if you're just somebody who just doesn't give a shit, like you got to at least not want to go down to somebody like this. Like if you're going to go down, if you're going to, if your world is going to be rendered meaningless, and if your freedoms are going to be taken away, and the information you're going to have, ac- you know, access to is going to be confined to pro-state jargon and uh, what's the word, jingoistic bullshit. Don't let it to be. Don't let it be to a guy like this. Let it, you know, go down. You know, if you're going to be go, you know, going down in defeat to an autocrat, it better be like a smart autocrat, somebody who's like sinister, evil genius. Not some jackass who like, it's just basically like a child king douchebag who's got to get two scoops of ice cream while all of his guests get one. (laughs) It's like a boy king. Like, did did you guys read that? Like when Donald Trump has people to the White House, like somebody who has been privy to these dinners, apparently the White House chef... When dessert rolls around, serves everybody in attendance one scoop of ice cream, but Donald gets two. Because he's fucking six years old. And every day is his birthday party. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm invested perhaps to a degree that is unhealthy in deep state Twitter, as I like to call it, or deep Twitter which is where the Louise Menches and the Claude Taylors of the world live. There is, for, for people who are not on Twitter, I have been saying this on Twitter, and I'll say it here now, uh, and perhaps again, I don't know if I've, I can never remember if I've mentioned things on this show before, but, you know, there is a book to be written about the role that Twitter has played in this presidency, not only with Trump uh, tweeting paranoid and uh, sadistic thoughts on his own feed, you know, repeatedly over the years and making, uh, you know, very good use of Twitter, uh, in terms of his own political ends. And also in collusion with the Russians who use social media to fuck up, you know, fuck with our election in 2016. Alleged, alleged, allegedly. But the other side of the Twitter coin, and this is maybe one of the great ironies of this experience is that, Ultimately, Donald Trump is going to be at least partially felled by the people of Twitter. There are, there are citizen journalists out there, whatever you want to call them, but people who have actively been trying to stitch together the conspiracy. And the reason I want to go on the record about this now is because nothing is, is 100% definitive yet. No arrests have been made. No indictments have been unsealed. It's May Fourteenth, Twenty Seventeen, and I want to go on the record and say that I think that the people on Twitter, who do include many nut, you know, nutty people, many conspiracy theorists, you know, theorists, theorists, many people who don't uh, have their facts straight, who are getting too wound up, who are improperly sourced, you know, there there is that. So I don't want to overstate. Uh, how effective deep Twitter has been. But the truth, uh, what is also true is that there are people in deep Twitter who have gotten some big things right, way ahead of the mainstream media. And uh, this includes people who properly analyzed the behavior of Trump, understood people like Paul Manafort, understood some of the tells, that he was exhibiting back during the campaign season authoritarian kleptocratic tells, tells that indicated that he was in cahoots with Russia. These people, I'm thinking of like Sarah Kenzior in particular, really understood the country. She read it right down to the electoral college, popular vote split. She called almost everything. <laughs> and if you if you haven't been reading Sarah Kenzior. Um I mean it's a disturbing thing it's disturbing to read because it uh, she's terrifying you know in the way that she delivers her assessments in this kind of flat matter-of-fact way and yet the accuracy of them overall has been uh pretty astonishing So I think of somebody like her who has built a pretty significant media platform right out of Twitter as a person who uh was uh, you know really accurate in her assessments of this? I think of Andrea Chalupa, I think of Summer Brennan, and then you get even further into deep Twitter, and you get to people that are more controversial. I think like Louise Mensch and Claude Taylor, whose feeds I have been reading for the past twenty four hours pretty addictively, who you know have gotten some things wrong, and have been you know, just kind of like incessantly tweeting about uh, Trump Russia. To the point where it gets hard to follow and confusing and exciting and worrying. And then you think like, oh, this is too good to be true. And then you read somebody say these people are, you know, full of shit and they're mentally ill and they're on drugs. And, you know, like the, like Twitter becomes this sort of cacophony of voices. And yet when I tease it, you know, I tease it apart. It appears as though Claude and Louise both really did legitimately flatly get some very big scoops on this story right And they did it way ahead of the mainstream media. Uh, Louise uh, scooping the story that there was a FISA warrant. I think that's the right language. I never know how to language this stuff with regard to, you know, legal, legalese. But she's the one who scooped the story that there was a FISA warrant. There was like an investigation of the uh, Trump people happening at, you know, at the federal level. And Claude Taylor broke the news that there had been uh, two grand juries impaneled, if I'm using that verb properly, one in New York uh, State and one in Virginia. That's not nothing. So did they get stuff wrong? Yes, from what I've read. Like I want to say Claude Taylor was talking about how Jason Chaffetz was out, like, you know, There is some hyperbole or overexcitement that winds up being misguided and inaccurate from what I've been reading. But these big things, true. Like what's the old F. Scott Fitzgerald line? Like, you know, you have to be able to hold, if you want to have a good mind, you have to be able to hold two opposing thoughts in your head at once. That's sort of how I feel about this stuff, about deep Twitter. It's also how I feel about James Comey, the now former FBI director. You know, as somebody who wanted Hillary Clinton to win the election, I was pretty angry at him when he came out and uh, tried to relitigate or, you know, basically tried to relitigate the Hillary email scandal just a few days before the election after it had already been put to bed. And it was kind of this big nothing burger. Like he came out and was like, we're looking at some new emails And everybody in the media freaked out for a week and Hillary's numbers dropped. And then he was like, oh, by the way, it was nothing. (laughs) They were all the same emails we already looked at. Sorry. There were like two new ones and they were, you know, a non-issue. Which breaks protocol for the FBI. It was not a normal thing for the FBI director to be doing in an election year. Particularly at that moment in the year, right before the actual vote. And yet, Trump firing Comey when Comey was in charge of investigating the possible relationship between Trump and his campaign and the Russian government. That is so transparently fucked up and indicative of somebody who is guilty, to be honest with you. It's, a, it's the transparent behavior of a panicking guilty person. And, you know, Trump then, if in case you haven't been reading the news at all, used as his justification the fact that Comey mishandled the Hillary Clinton email scandal, which is farcical. It's possible to be a person who is troubled by what Comey did with respect to Hillary's emails in October and also be a person who is troubled by what Trump did when he fired Comey, just as Comey was conducting an investigation into Trump. It's like you can chew gum and walk at the same time. You can believe and feel both of those things at the same time. Do you know what I'm saying? So, deep Twitter, got some stuff wrong, got some stuff right. And last night, uh, you know, right around, what was it, like 9 o'clock at night? Claude Taylor, I went to his feed and it said, there are sealed indictments... In the Eastern District of Virginia. Trump, Manafort, Flynn going down. Impeachment going to happen. Or they're going to be used as the grounds for impeachment. These indictments. And then, you know, the story has grown. And uh, Claude Taylor is reporting that, uh, you know, as many as 70 that's seven zero people are going to be indicted for, I don't know what, you know, esp- espionage, treason, money laundering, all of the above. That's a lot of people. <laughs> it's, uh, it, strains, you know, it strains credulity. You're like, really? Is this really 70? And Trump is going to, and, you know, the whole thing. And yet they've gotten some stuff right. Big stuff. Ahead of the curve. They have sources somewhere. So here it is Sunday night. And uh, May 14th, 2017. And we could be in for the craziest week, certainly in our lifetime, from a political perspective, a historical perspective, American history perspective. And possibly... It's possibly the the biggest uh, and craziest story in the history of the country. So if I'm going to try to tie this back into writing, since this is a show about writing, (laughs) we could be living in a moment in history that winds up being the craziest chapter in American history. And we've had a few crazy ones, but having a sitting president be a stooge for a hostile foreign adversary, To have the national security advisor for 28 days or whatever it was. With access at the highest levels of security clearance to all of our national secrets and whatnot. In cahoots on the payroll of the Russian government. That is a big story. It's worth paying attention to and as citizens i believe very much that we have to engage i think that's part of the problem is that people are disengaged just don't give a fuck or don't have time to give a fuck or feel too tired to give a fuck or used to give a fuck but then got screwed over too many times and just had to stop giving a fuck because it was becoming unhealthy there are just a, you know the truth is that there are just a lot of people who just don't give a shit they don't care and then there are a lot of people out there who just can't care because they're working like six jobs to stay alive. And that needs to be said, too. Part of this problem is education. Maybe the, the biggest part of the problem. People not having access to education, people not having the time and resources they need in order to actually engage with the system, the way that the media and the people in power work together to make things purposefully confusing and fucked up. It's all of that. So, I guess we'll see. We're going to find out, you know, what, uh, whether or not Deep Twitter has it right or wrong, whether or not uh, we slide into autocracy or the checks and balances of our system hold. A lot is at stake. So, bothers me. Fucking obsessed. (laughs) Just want this guy... I, I, I feel like it's pretty obvious that the guy is guilty of sin, and I want him brought to justice. I want him to be frog-marched out of the White House. Like, shitting his pants... In his silk... Gold... Fucking jammies. Just crying. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, fuck you, man. Get some help. Just a big... Just shitting himself... (laughs) Just gold jammies, just sobbing and handcuffs. That's what I want. Fuck you. For the last, you know, a year and and change of my life. Like what you've done to people's realities the world over is a uh, grave offense, my opinion. You know, and then one more thought with regard to uh, narrative, with regard to the story that we're currently living as uh, citizens, is uh, the the transition. I'm very I'm very fixated on the transition from the Obama presidency to the Trump presidency. Like, there hasn't been a more jarring transition, ideologically speaking, or temperamentally speaking, in my lifetime. That was an odd one. You had Obama handing the reins of power over to a guy who had questioned his place of birth, who had attacked him unfairly in racist ways throughout his presidency. I mean, like, just bizarre. And yet Obama conducted himself in a gentlemanly fashion, cool as a cucumber as always. You know, once Trump, once Trump won the election, quote unquote, you didn't hear too much from Obama at all about it. It was just, okay, well, he's the, he's the president elect and we're going to try to make this an orderly transition. And we're going to try to uh, ensure the stability of the American, you know, like all that kind of stuff. He did his job. And yet we've, you know, we've learned that the uh, investigation into into the relationship between the Trump campaign and Russia goes back to last, what, you know, what is it, July? Do I have that straight? Which means that, uh, you know, Obama was receiving daily intelligence briefings as the commander in chief for months prior to Donald Trump's uh, swearing in as the 45th president Obama on the day of Trump's inauguration knew as much, if not more than anybody about what was actually going on. He knew, he knew that the campaign was in bed with the Russians. He had to have heard some of those tapes. If the FBI had been investigating them and had a FISA warrant to record and intercept their communications, telephonic, email. I have to believe that evidence as it was becoming available was being presented to President Obama, right? Am I wrong? It's possible that I have a blind spot here. I do not, I do not have every single fact of this straight in my head. I, don't, I want to make sure I issue that caveat. And I think it's a defensible one because there's a lot of threads to keep track of. But I just wonder about what Obama knew when he knew it and how he made the decisions that he made with respect to the 2016 election, with respect to the integrity of our institutions and the dangers uh, posed with respect to the infiltration of our institutions by the Russian government. Like, what did he know? And right now, today, does he regret not being more forceful in, say, like October, not making a statement and saying, listen, ladies and gentlemen of the United States, I realize we're in, ele- you know, in an election year. I realize how this may look. It may look like I'm putting my thumb on the scale. But the reality is that we've been attacked by the Russians. It's a cyber attack. And uh, the Republican candidate is in bed with them. Not that he would have used those words. Like, and maybe he didn't have the intel at that point. Maybe it only really came into clear focus in December, but even then, or maybe it did it did it never come into focus and he just transitioned and then it came into, you know, I want to know what he knew and when. And my suspicion is that he knew quite a lot. And so what I've been thinking of, and I really am trying to tie this into books, <laughs> uh, what I'm thinking of is Obama transitioning out of the White House, handing over the nuclear football to Donald Trump. And then Obama goes on vacation. He goes to like Necker Island to hang out with Richard Branson and go like jet skiing in the Caribbean. And then he's in Palm Desert. And then he goes out to uh, Polynesia. He's in like Tahiti. He's on David Geffen's yacht. He's supposedly holed up at the Brando on Teshiroa writing his presidential memoir. Right? That he got, was it $60 million for, or was that the book deal was combined for Michelle and Barack, but he's got to write his presidential memoir. He is uh, in modern history, probably the best writer of any president. So it's a hotly anticipated book. We're expecting big things. It's going to be well done. And he's got a story to tell. First African-American president Came into office as the economy was cratering. The Great Recession pulled us back from the brink, saved the auto industry, uh, two wars, Afghanistan, Iraq, healthcare, financial reform. You know all the big, all the big uh, legislative and foreign policy storylines that you could imagine. That's what you would think of would, you know, would be the bulk of Obama's book. And probably that maybe, you know, at least in terms of word count, that'll be the case. But what I keep thinking of lately is what is the last, like fifth of Obama's book going to be like? That's going to be some interesting reading to see what he says, how candid he is. And what the reveal is, what in the fuck was happening in the Oval Office and in those intelligence briefs or briefings or whatever between July of 2016 and January of 2017. That's a chapter I want to read. So my guest is uh, Elizabeth L. Silver. I apologize. This is maybe the longest monologue ever, but I had a lot. Of, I you know have a lot on my mind, and uh, like I said earlier, the story is changing fast. So if I'm going to go on the record, I got to do it while I can. Hey everybody! If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called "Truth Is the Arrow, Mercy Is the Bow." So, Elizabeth L. Silver is the guest. Her new memoir is called The Tincture of Time. It's out there now from Penguin Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is Elizabeth L. Silver.
1: I was born in New Orleans. Um, and two to parents who are not Southerners. Uh, my mom is from Brooklyn, and uh, my father is an infant Holocaust survivor. So he was born in Poland during the war, and then grew up in Baltimore. And then both families independently moved to Los Angeles in the 60s. So I have some family in California, but they happened to be living in New Orleans when I was born.
0: Wow, so wait, your father was an infant Holocaust survivor? Yes. What does that mean? He was born in a camp? Or...
1: He was born in the Rodham Poland ghetto. Um, and, uh, my grandparents, his parents were, uh, in, well, my grandfather was on Schindler's list, and my grandmother was, uh, in Auschwitz, and they both survived. And my father was hidden. He was a hidden child. Um, and, uh, he was born in 42 when my grandparents were in, in the ghetto, and right before they were taken off to the camps, they kind of, they suspected what was gonna happen. And so they put him in, uh, they, through my grandfather's girlfriend, my grandfather's... I'm sorry, my father's uncle was hidden by his Polish girlfriend, and she kept an eye on where my father was. So they gave him to her, and she put him on um, the doorstep of an orphanage who took him in, and then he was adopted by another family who raised him for three years until the end of the war.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. it's Essentially, I mean, I feel like in many ways it's kind of this mythology of my life, and after... What I'm 38 years old. So after 38 years of kind of knowing bits and pieces, you know, very anecdotal evidence really of of this history, we all went to Poland. We went to Radom, Poland last month as a family with my father and his sister and my mother and my my brothers and sisters and my my cousins. And we walked in that orphanage. We walked around the Radom ghetto.
0: The orphanage is still there? The
1: orphanage is still there. Wow. Yeah. It's
0: a good orphanage. It's got some staying power.
1: <laughs> it's, it's now a daycare.
0: <laughs> it is. Okay.
1: Yeah. It's, it's now Still a, in childcare business. Exactly. They, they haven't veered too far.
0: Is it a family business? Like the same people run it or
1: it's run by nuns. Oh, well. So some families, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a certain kind of family, Christ family, Christ's right? family. Exactly.
0: <laughs> that's, I mean, that's like, a, I mean, talk about a family narrative that, uh, will impress itself upon a person. I mean, you know, like that's, that's some kind of story.
1: I feel it's 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 interesting when you think about kind of the Holocaust history and Holocaust families and i I've, I actually and even though my book is actually not about this at all and somehow it comes it comes out because I feel like if you have that sort of history, it comes out in, in getting to know anybody within the first couple of days, maybe even a couple of minutes as, as as is done here.
0: If that had happened to me, I would work it into every conversation. <laughs> <laughs> No matter sports, I don't care. Anything I'm talking about, like the Holocaust (laughs) is coming up and surviving and, um, like, what did I just read? Oh, I just read this book by, I'm going to blank on his name, but it's about the, not like the third Reich and how pretty much everybody from Hitler on down during that time was hyped up on crystal meth. Have you heard of this book? It's called Blitz? blitz. Yes. Yeah. So I it, haven't
1: read it, but I, it's 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 on my my reading queue.
0: I mean, it's like one of these. It's kind of one of those things that I sort of peripherally knew. I knew that Hitler did a lot of drugs, and you know, but th- this is a comprehensive historical taking apart of um, the Third Reich from that perspective, and it's kind of mind blowing.
1: That's fascinating because I mean, what what I find so interesting about holocaust history and holocaust literature um specifically is, is that you know even though there's so much that we know about it just like any stories there's so much we don't know and yet the more books and the more films that are out there about it in some sort of sad way it becomes diluted and there's a new angle to take or there's a new perspective and that was a, that's a fascinating one because it it will draw in i hope a new audience and a new readership to learn about about the history like, i don't want to read about them
0: i just want to read about drugs <laughs> but but what it does for me is it like I think the reason I was drawn to it is a you know I am interested in that like I'm interested in reading about drugs I guess but it also and more importantly made the insanity of those times make some more sense somehow I'm always reaching for a logic even where there's none to be found you know what I'm saying like these people were all crazy on speed it makes the behavior a little bit more understandable
1: I think I mean what, what you're saying about reaching for logic where there doesn't seem to be any I mean I think that's at the, at, at times of at these very heightened times of uh extreme political moments like we're in now, like then what are you
0: talking about
1: <laughs> there's nothing going on right <laughs> now, nothing out of the ordinary um but uh it, it you know it, I think it helps to have some sort of grounding in some sort of narrative and and drugs in many ways provide that for us i mean they they're a narrative in and of themselves, how they come about, what we do with them and and they actually cause a great amount of narratives, good and bad. Yeah. And so...
0: Well, I mean, and, and you know, I like there's also like a history to pharmacology that is specific to Germany that I didn't realize. Like I wasn't fully aware of how, how many, um, pharmaceuticals that we use to this day originated in Germany.
1: Really? Like, yeah. like what?
0: Oh God, I'm going to forget. My brother it, just
1: moved to Germany. So this is well, very interesting for me to know.
0: We have some news for you, but it's like. It's like, uh, I'm going to screw it up, but it could be something like, um, not Ritalin, but let's just say, you know, Ritalin or Valium, like big time brand name pharmaceuticals, many of which originated in, you know, German pharmaceutical companies. Hmm. And there was a crystal meth was actually delivered in over the counter pill form. During the time of the third Reich and was taken in massive quantities by the German population Mm. and was used extensively among the German army, which, you know, if the Nazis aren't terrifying enough, imagine like thousands of them, like jacked up on meth running at you across a field, screaming, (laughs) that's kind of what they were up to. You know,
1: does the book make the argument that some sort of not, I wouldn't say excuse, but explanation
0: No, I think it was just, I think it's just basically like another, you know, it's a prismatic kind of thing. And this is just one more angle on the insanity, you know, and, and it makes, uh, a pretty convincing case that it was a lot more disorganized and incompetent at the top Hmm. than I had realized. Like, we yeah. always
1: think about Germans as being so organized. And... Well, Hitler
0: was like the, they weren't, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing. And like really earlier in the war than most people, especially in that time realized they didn't really have a handle on it, but they did, they were kind of juicing. Hmm. And so some of the, uh, early battles were won, I think because a, they were just kind of insane and B, they were all on speed. Mm. They have like an, it's like steroids. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Well, yeah. And I mean, kind of thinking, thinking of that, I mean, there's, there's those drugs and then there's the drugs that, it, that essentially cause the same problems and the same strife and the same horrors that whether it's,
0: well, it's diminishing returns, Yeah, well, you know, the early battles it worked and then slowly people got burned out and right. Hitler went nuts. They turned
1: to adrenaline and <laughs> they turned to, <laughs> 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 to
0: whatever. I mean, like lots propaganda, of, lots of morphine. There was lots of morphine too. So anyway crazy times and uh you know your family history it's i mean it's, it sounds like a lucky one at least from your parents perspective to get out of there
1: they were i i think that um i mean i i can't speak for them but i know that there is this concept of i mean I, it, the concept of survivorship is very interesting to me as a technically, you know, like a second generation and first generation. Um, but also kind of how it's applied universally, whether it's to actual survivorship of, you know, a war, um, an atrocity like, like the Holocaust or, or anything else, whether it's an injury, whether it's, um, an illness, what, what, you know, no no matter how you apply it. And, um, what,
0: this is something that you're interested in
1: survivorship. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I kind of refer to it with respect to like injury and illness um, in in the memoir but I think it's also interesting to to kind of to look at that with respect to where you fit into your identity do you are you proud of using that term do you feel like it's misused I think it's often misused with respect to illness um, I kind of I mean when I think of survivors and when I think of survivorship I, I often think of holocaust survivors I also think of cancer survivors and um, I don't know that a lot of people necessarily agree with using that word survivor towards cancer survivors or any sort of other illness or ailment because there's, you know, as Susan Sondag talks about this, it kind of creates that, that battle and creates a winner and a loser. And there, there aren't, Yeah.
0: what about the people who don't make it?
1: Exactly. Are they losers? Of course they're not losers. Cancer
0: loser. (laughs) It's harsh.
1: It's very harsh. Yeah. And it, and it creates this language, you know, and, and this imperative that if you don't survive, then then you've lost. And it's not a battle. It's something that happens. It's something that happens to our bodies. I don't like
0: that either. I've never responded very, I mean, I always respond, uh, you know, in an empathetic way to the plight of the person who's battling the disease or who has the disease, but just that use of language, I bristle at a little bit.
1: Yeah. And and language is so important, particularly when you're dealing with something so sensitive, um, whether it's illness, whether it's cancer, whether it's history. Um, and uh, like I'm
0: going I'm to kick cancer's ass. Right. That, I get that. I get it. You, you need to have, I, I mean, I can only imagine it's must be awful to be afflicted with it. And you need to find a way to keep your, your spirits up. And it's, a, I guess it's better than just totally folding in, you know, folding up the tents and saying, I'm, I'm done for, you know, yeah. but it's a
1: rallying know. cry, and if it, if it works for you, then use it. Right. You know, but I think that there's a lot of people, and I think there's a growing number of people who who do have a problem with it because of that kind of battle line divide. Um, and they might feel like, okay, maybe there's somewhere in between, or maybe they want to find their own battle cry. And saying that I'm going to beat this, you know, makes you feel... I'm
0: going to mutilate yeah, cancer. It's like <laughs> you,
1: you don't necessarily have control over this. No. And so then it it causes a lot of... Um, I think it causes, it might cause, you know, psychological weakness or it might cause some sort of problems for you to kind of cope with it or, or to quote unquote, fight it. If you're constantly using that metaphor, that kind of war battle metaphor.
0: Right. Yeah. Language choices are interesting. It's all, it's all difficult stuff. Um, talk like talking about illness. I mean, your book deals with the illness of a child. And so that's almost like doubly tough. It's one thing if it's happening to you, but if it's happening to a child, then I speak from experience my son was born with some difficulties. So, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, neurological difficulties. So I totally get it. Um, and you wrote an entire book about it. So you, why don't you talk a little bit about the overarching story just so listeners can get a window in?
1: Sure. Um, well, my, uh, my daughter, um, I had a, a full term delivery, she was, um, very, you know, had, a, had no complications in, um, her, uh, in the pregnancy. And then at, at six weeks, she started having seizures and it turned out that she had a, a brain bleed, a fourth degree brain bleed, which is the worst kind. And so we were hospitalized in the NICU for two weeks. Um, and this just, is a stroke, this essential, exactly. It's yeah. a stroke. It's uh, and, and in many ways, that's the easiest way to describe it. It's the most kind of universally understood, um, strokes, strokes can have such a wide array of, of outcomes. And so, um, you know, we're discharged with this idea of, okay, well, she could be totally fine. Have some physical therapy and let's kind of see what happens. Or here's this laundry list of, of problems. That's, isn't that fun? And that's fun. You're <laughs> like in the best word the thing of what they say is go home and enjoy your child. Right. Um, so you don't know how to do that. You don't know how to be a parent. First of all. Yeah. Um,
0: so much uncertainty,
1: so much uncertainty. And so I, I, I come from a family of, of doctors, and so medicine for me had always been this comforting place. I, I did, never got afraid of hospitals or doctors. I wasn't afraid to go. I never was afraid of shots. Death never scares me. It, still, it never scared me. It still doesn't scare me. Um, and so it doesn't,
0: it, Death doesn't scare you? Not at all. You're not worried about dying?
1: No, it's going to happen at some point.
0: And you're not worried about, but what about those close to you? That's scary, right?
1: That's, you know, I, I worry about that. Yeah. I mean, I worry about that. Um, I worry about suffering more.
0: Yeah. It's like dying <clears throat> sucks. Being dead, no big deal.
1: <laughs> I mean, we don't know it. We can't, we can't fully know what happens. And so if I right. can't, if I actually don't know what it's going to be like, then I, I can't fear it. I also, to some extent, don't have a control over that. Um,
0: That's a very healthy attitude.
1: Well, not, you should see my other things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got
0: plenty of other issues. Got
1: plenty of other issues. For some odd reason, I'm not afraid of dying. <laughs> um, but uh, I, uh, I, uh, we, we kind of, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do with myself. And so um, my first book had just come out. I found out I was pregnant when my first book came out in hardback, like the same day, essentially. It was fiction. And it was a novel. Yeah, it was fiction. And then um, the paperback came out like, essentially right when we were in the hospital. And so I was supposed to be working on my next novel. I was supposed to be, and this was my, my, my job. Now I'd resigned from practicing law. I was working full-time as a writer and I obviously couldn't do any of that. And so, um, we were just working with her and having all these doctor's appointments, neurosurgery, neurology, I mean, everything that, um, that comes about with, with an injury like this. And, uh, I just started exploring what it meant to deal with uncertainty because that was what we were facing. It wasn't necessarily a medical crisis. It wasn't this kind of crazy medical mystery necessarily, but it was, what is it? What does it mean? What do you do when you don't have an answer? When you don't know what the future holds, it could be a or Z or anything in between. And so, um, I started reading up about it. I read pretty much every sad, depressing memoir out there. Here's the thing.
0: It's hard to read this stuff like your child is, is dealing with uh, health issues, especially related to the brain, I think, because the brain is still a mystery, largely, mm-hmm. like within the medical community. Like there's there's a lot that's not known,
1: yeah. which is both
0: good and bad, because you're like, well, we don't know. Maybe there's, they're going to come up with something. But you start to read, especially if it's on the Internet, and it's very easy, I find, to spiral <laughs> all of a sudden. Because the stuff that winds up online especially tends to be the bad stuff. Yeah. And so it's very easy to get sucked into a wormhole of sadness.
1: It is. And I I I don't know what you share. I, I didn't know anything about uh, your child, so I'm I'm interested in talking to you about that and um but I, I don't know um what you what you uh what you what you've written if you've written about it or if you share anything.
0: It's hard, you know, like I I've talked about it briefly when we were in the diagnosis phase about a year ago on this show and then this is the first time I've ever spoken of it since because There's so much that is not known and so much that will not be known for years that I don't feel comfortable talking in detail about his medical situation in a public forum, uh, because it's not defined and I don't want to preemptively, um, make statements that could later prove to be false or vice versa. Like it's just, it's a very weird space to be in and you know, it's his health. It's not, you know, it's like. I don't know how to do it especially I'm on a microphone every week and you know as a parent um who loves his child you know his children dearly like this is all that I think about yeah people listening to this show like and I'm sure you go through this in your life like it's just below the surface every second mm-hmm. of every of every day every moment of my life and it will be forever um but you can't just bust it out all the time. No,
1: no, <laughs> I, I, as
0: much as I would like to.
1: Well, I really, I mean, sometimes you do, and then sometimes you don't. And, and that's, that was a difficulty for me when approaching this. Cause I didn't, I didn't, you know, the book is not so much about what our story as it is about this kind of, this cultural criticism or cultural criticism and looking outside of that. It. It's about uncertainty. It's about case studies. I spoke with other people. And so it's, it's littered with case studies and literary criticism and religion and philosophy and just kind of that concept of what does that mean? Like when you don't know what the future is. So, um, but as, as kind of as, as writers, it's, it's always posing that sort of, um, internal conflict. Um, because you,
0: you want to express,
1: you want to express, you also want to protect your child
0: Yeah, and you don't want
1: to write anything that could have any possibility of harming him or her later.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's how I feel. And yet at the same time, I think that there is something valuable. I mean, I always appreciate it when people are transparent and when they share, because when somebody does that, you know, it it works against that sense of isolation or loneliness. You know what I'm saying? So I think there's, there's a lot of value in openness too. it's just trying to strike the right balance.
1: I agree. I, that was, for me, the biggest challenge I had. Um, and, you know, coming in as a mother and wanting to make sure that my child is protected. And I read so many books that kind of, and, and there's no right or wrong in this, but that said so much about the child. You know, whether it was behavior, personality, a lot of factual information, and then some that didn't. Um, and what I, I mean, what I did here is I, I mean... For whatever it matters or whatever it means. Like, you know, her name is changed and there are very few, you know, kind of identifying details about her. It's essentially, well, she's sick in the hospital. And so I actually went and gave an early draft of this to my entire family. Everyone related to her and said, okay, you're reading this as her advocate. And, you know, whatever, whatever you think of your interpretation, your, your presentation in the book, it doesn't matter I and mean, yeah. my husband my <laughs> husband had veto power. he's pretty much the only one who had veto power because I talk about our marriage in there and our life but um but with respect to her, I was like you know I can, we can't truly know, but your only role here is her advocate. What do you think um and whether this you know remains to be true 15, 20 years from now, not every single one of them said, "Oh my goodness, if there's there's nothing in here even remotely concerning," um, because it's not her behavior, it's not her personality. There's no no choices, um, and uh, at the end of the day, um, we you know the idea of uncertainty, we have we have a lot more answers than we did at the beginning, and so um, with respect to that. Um, there was kind of this sense of, okay, we we're you're, we're, we're protecting her and you're writing this, this story and you're exploring this topic that needs to be explored so that people can connect with it. And just as much as I needed those books when I was going through, um, my, what I call the acute period of uncertainty.
0: Yeah. Well, and you know, you also, your father's a doctor.
1: My father's a doctor. Yeah. So that
0: gives you a lens into, um, the, the experience of being the mother of a patient, you know what I'm saying? Like you have, you have a deeper understanding. I would imagine dad was a surgeon, like not just like a pediatrician, but he's in there like cutting people. Yes.
1: He, my father's a surgeon. My husband's a, a rheumatologist. He's a doctor. And my sister is also a rheumatologist. And, um, for a brief moment in my prior Professional history: I I worked as a medical practice defense attorney. So I spent, you know, 30 plus years thinking there's nothing nothing wrong happens. You know, (laughs) all of the all the problems are they're in the small percentage. And then I went from that being my, you know, my my approach and my understanding of medicine to my entire professional life. My every hour of every day needs to be spent on the one percent of things that go wrong. You want to spend all your time thinking, ah, that one percent is not going to happen to me. But then I had to spend all of my time focusing on that that 1%, that 0.01% of things that do go wrong. And that, that messed with me. Um, and then, uh, and then I got pregnant and then I had my daughter. And so I, I think because of those perspectives, I have kind of this, I have a different look, you know, I have a different view into medicine. And so I kind of have that, that lens that I didn't necessarily need, the social worker to explain to me what X, Y, and Z means. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm, I'm not a doctor. Um, I, I have an intimacy with medicine, but I'm not a doctor. I, can, I think through kind of through osmosis and through the years of almost always living with somebody with a medical degree, I have an understanding of, okay, you, you're people. You're not demigods walking around. Right. Um, you also don't have all the answers. Um, I was and- going to say,
0: did it affect... Did this experience affect your confidence in medicine?
1: You know, I still feel confident in medicine, but I'm very aware of its deficits. I'm aware of its... um, I have a better way of approaching a, a crisis in terms of knowing the right questions to ask. I actually, I think that's kind of, that's a big problem that people who aren't doctors or aren't related to the medical field in some capacity, that's the biggest problem. So you you go to a doctor, a doctor's gonna give you the lowdown as best he or she can, and some are good at breaking it down, some are not. Um
0: not all doctors are created equal.
1: <laughs> not our doctor No, that is that is certainly true. But
0: it's weird because I find that <clears throat> in our culture at least, and maybe this is changing some, but it just feels like if somebody has an M D and it's doctor, they it automatically Confers a sort of legitimacy. There's a respect that goes along with that, and then if you get into a situation where you're dealing with with a health issue, or you, you're God forbid in a situation where like a doctor gets things horribly wrong, or you have a doctor that's just got terrible bedside manner and just isn't, then all of a sudden you're like, well, wait a minute, I, this isn't earned, or this, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like I do. it can be frustrating.
1: Yeah, I I don't have a problem. Well, I have to say, I, I found that the doctors who were very kind and admitted their admitted their fallacy in many ways. I, I, I respected and I trusted more. If yeah, they said I, they they were it was humility, but it was also this sense of I don't know. I'm gonna go look at that. I'm gonna research that. I spent I had this one neonatologist who, you know, came to us and she's like, I spent all night thinking I I can't figure it out and I keep wanting to figure it out and I, I don't know why this is happening. I can't connect the dots. And I trusted her. And I was like, you're, you are smart. You are a very bright, bright doctor. You're a bright person. You're a bright doctor. And you're probably a good person too. You're not
0: putting on airs.
1: You're not putting on airs when, when, when your suggestions are dismissed. Then that's a different question and a different, different problem. Now the bedside manner, I, I, I go back and forth on this. You know, if it's a surgeon, I honestly don't care if you have a good bedside manner. I know a lot of people do. Part of it, maybe it's because I was raised by a surgeon, but at the same time, surgeons aren't necessarily known for their bedside manner. I want you to be good with a scalpel.
0: cut the right.
1: Yeah. If you're good with a scalpel, you're the one holding it. I don't want to piss you off. Right. Like if you
0: I'm not going to be awake. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um I'm not going to be awake, you know. If you're if you're good with a scalpel, if you don't have a good bedside manner, okay, that's probably because the, your skill set is elsewhere. You know, maybe there's a small selection of people who are both good with the bedside and good with the scalpel. Yeah. But I suspect that the people who are better at the bedside go into medicine and not necessarily surgery.
0: Yeah, it's like yeah, there's like I've read things about the temperament of like really really good brain surgeons and stuff like that and it's like, you have to be a different kind of cat. That's a lot of pressure.
1: It is. I, I remember we, we would go to multiple brain surgeons, like pedi- I mean, we're talking pediatric brain surgeons. So you've got, I mean, in the pecking order, I always put that at the, you know, that's at the top. Yeah. And, uh, we would always just compare opinions back and forth because, you know, if you're contemplating brain surgery, which we never actually had to deal with, but there was a possibility of that when we were faced with the question of hydrocephalus for, um, almost two years There's this question of, okay, well, who am I going to trust and why? What makes me trust you? What makes your opinion better than the others? And a lot of that is gut. You know, a lot of that is what is What are you, what are you being told? You know, hopefully their opinions are, there's a consensus, but if there's not, then, then the question goes on you.
0: I was going to say that's a lot. I feel a lot of pressure when you're the parent of a child and you're advocating for them in a medical context and you're dealing with subject matter. I mean, you're lucky because you're married to a doctor and you come from a, you know, but you have like some medical resources at your disposal to, you know, bounce ideas off of, or you know what I'm saying, but there's a lot of pressure to get it right. Yeah. You don't want to screw it up.
1: No. And I felt like, you know, I felt that for the first time so profoundly when, when we had to deal with our first MRI, I mean, because in a sense, I mean, when you're, when you're in an ER situation or an intensive care situation, I really don't have a lot of control there. I mean, technically you're the parent, you can, but what are you going to do? Say, no, don't treat my child when they're in intensive care. Of course you're going to say, do what you need to do. I right. mean, I would hope that most people would do that. Um, but when you're outpatient and it's your choice to say, okay, well, we know we need, to, we need to put your child under so that she can be perfectly still so we can get a good image. I mean, yes, use your logic. Yeah, laundry. we have to do
0: that for the MRI? That's no fun. It's
1: no fun. Yeah. It's, it's, it, um, Eula Biss describes it in, um, On Immunity. She says it's like a rehearsal of death, which I think is terrifyingly accurate. Um, and, uh, that was kind of the first moment I felt this, wow, this is, this is an awe and terrifyingly awesome responsibility. And, what, it,
0: as a parent or as a doctor? As a parent. Yeah.
1: I mean, as a doctor, I think that that's that's what they're trained for, you know. But and, and their emotions, thank goodness, are separate, or at least some, you know, to some extent. But when as you're the parent, you're, you can't separate your emotions. No. And, and
0: just so people listening, like when you when you have a, a young child, like a infant or a toddler that is going in for an MRI, they will um, use anesthesia so that the child stays still inside the MRI tube. And so I don't know about you, but I was like standing there, and they put the mask on the child, and all of a sudden they're just out. Out. That's no fun.
1: No, it's, it's very scary. And
0: then they take you out of there. You have to walk out and then you're just kind of you sitting, wait. sitting there waiting while your child is lying there unconscious in the tube.
1: You wait, you yeah. wait, you wait, yeah. you sit there, you, you pedal your thumbs, you just go playing, to the cafeteria, playing you Tetris
0: on your phone. I think right. that's what I did. You play Tetris. I think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, we, we, yeah, we, um, we went to the cafeteria. We just ate like French fries. You
0: ate. <laughs> Comfort food. Comfort food. Whatever you got to do. I ate a
1: lot of French fries. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I find comfort food, yeah. We. Um, but as, you know, it, the first one I, was certainly the most terrifying, but as they go on and you have, a, at least for our experience, you have a better idea of how things are going, that it, they became more routine and less terrifying. You get
0: used to the propofol. It's, uh, you yeah. know.
1: <laughs> but it's it's crazy, though, that um, it's not that you get, you know, in some senses you get used to it, but in some senses you don't. Like, you, you never get used to necessarily the reality, but you get used to the process, the procedure.
0: Yeah. Well, it's like, it's an unnatural thing to, you know, it's an unnatural thing as a parent to stand there while somebody puts a mask over your child's face and they go unconscious and then you walk away.
1: (laughs) Well, it it goes against the grain of of your, your your programming. Exactly.
0: Oh my God. So just to
1: have to separate yourself in any capacity, whether even from a a blood draw or from an x-ray, anything.
0: Yeah. So how how is your? May I ask how your daughter's doing?
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, she is doing exceptionally well. She is um, for for a host of reasons, whether it's luck, neuroplasticity. I mean, I see you have uh, Norman Doidge's "The Brain That Changes Itself" up yes. there, which is uh, I actually read it and refer to it in in the book, but. Um, because of the phenomenon of neuroplasticity and the luck of the location of the stroke um, and her age and kind of being the sweet spot at six weeks, it's as if it never happened. It's oh. I, 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 I I stay away from using the word miracle because I, I don't like that term. I don't think that it's necessarily accurate. I think it's a combination of neuroplasticity, early intervention.
0: She kicked luck. Brain Bleed's ass.
1: She did. <laughs> and then some. She's a champion. She is. She's a little prodigy. Yeah. She's a she's thriving and doing exceptionally well and is, I mean, if you, as people say, if you didn't, if you didn't know, you wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I, I'm a big advocate for early intervention and, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, one of her neurologists said, you know, if, if, uh, this happened earlier, the outcome might've been different. If it happened later, it happened before she learned how to do anything. So she had a full term healthy. She was the healthiest baby essentially on the block with one of the worst problems in the NICU. But she, She didn't have to, her body didn't have to fight to have its heart, you know, have the heartbeat, you know, her her body didn't have to fight to have its lungs work, except for a brief moment when she was on a ventilator. Um, But so all of the, all of the body's energy was able to focus on having the brains, you know, the neurons rewire. And so we just threw ourselves into physical therapy and, you know, occupational therapy to combat any potential risks that might happen. And she had that until she was three graduated is done. Um, we followed up after a brain bleed. Um, there's the possibility of hydrocephalus, which is, you know, the water on the brain and, um, whether or not she would need a shunt, um, brain surgery to release that. And so that's a, that's a big possibility. So that's why we had the MRIs in part every, um, every three to six months for several years. Um, and it turns out that she narrowly escaped that as well. Wow! So, um,
0: good for her. Yes. Yes. Thank yes. God,
1: Thank God yeah. in every which way. So she's she's doing great, and she has a little brother.
0: And you and yeah, and you had another one. <laughs> and I had another one because it was so much fun. Because <laughs> it was so Let's much. Let's do this fun. again. Let's do this again. <laughs> it's crazy how people do this. You know, like they, like having kids. Um, it's wonderful, but man, it raises the stakes. And you just love those kids so much, and the possibility that something could happen to them. Like as a parent, everyone who has kids, you carry that. That's the bargain. As a parent, you carry that around with you. People take that every day. They're like, okay, I'll take that. And so, willingly. We'll see what happens. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's, it's, it really is terrifying whether, you know, whether this happens to you or not. I mean, I, I kind of approach uncertainty and I didn't realize this when I started writing the book because you don't realize, at least for me, I don't always realize what I'm doing when I start writing a book and particularly this type of book, which I had no idea I was going to write. Um, and it's different because I, I'm a novelist. I write fiction, and so I, uh, I very much kind of halfway through writing, and I realized there's the three there's the kind of these three stages of illness, which is acute, subacute, and chronic. Um, and I applied that to uncertainty, and that's how I the book is kind of divided into those three sections. And once I kind of realized that and applied it to my own story, I realized how much it applies to almost any situation of uncertainty. And and that chronic part is. Okay. Well then, it, like we're saying, it's, it's many ways, either your, your, your norm becomes the unknown. And that's, that is what it, that's what becomes known. You know that you're going to have a life of, you know, uncertainty. It sounds like
0: Donald Rumsfeld, the known unknowns. Yeah. Do you remember that speech? I,
1: <laughs> well.
0: <laughs> remember that when he was like, I, the, there's the knowns and then there's the known unknowns. There's the known unknowns. <laughs>
1: but there, but there's something that's kind of, you know, politicians and such a side, but yeah. <laughs> there's something in some weird way that is that you can wrap your head around. If you know that you're not going to find out an answer until it happens, then you can accept that. And then, and then if you do have an answer, then you're going to just be like the rest of us. Your parent, you don't, you're, you don't know what the future is going to hold. And so it's essentially chronic uncertainty, which might be morbid, but at the same time, is it sort of you know a rubric to kind of wrap your head around when dealing with any sort of uncertain medical situation. Um, and I think, like we we're talking about when it applies to neuro- neurological things, is heightened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like there's all these games you sort of have to play with yourself to get through the day to, um, like, you, cause the thing about it too, as a parent is that you're dealing with all of these difficult feelings and yet you still have to be a parent.
1: You have to be a parent.
0: Like you have gotta be there for your kids. So you can't just like break down. You can't just uh, lie on the couch and go fetal as tempting as it (laughs) might (laughs) sound.
1: You can't, you probably do that sometimes, (laughs) but, uh, but, but yeah, there, and, and there's that sense of, if you seem afraid, then they're going to be afraid. Right. And there's that sense of, okay, you have to be stronger. You have to not give that facade of concern, but
0: then, but you also don't want to, because I think kids have good bullshit detectors. And so it's like, you don't want to lie to them. So it's got to be authentic. Yeah. So it's like, how do you be authentically cool? And I don't mean cool and like, you know, the cool kid at school. I mean, cool headed. Yeah. You know, how do you come across as authentic and in control when... Things are that uncertain, you know. what I'm saying, like, it's a I, tall order. It's
1: a tall order, and I think it <laughs> takes time to figure that out. Yeah. and I think that you're going to do it differently than than your partner would. You know, I know that my it, it's taken me a long time to realize that. Okay, I'll develop my own style of communication, and I'll, I'll see what works for that guy and that girl, and I might admire certain parts of it but that's not how I'm going to work. And I've, when I've tried to be like, well, okay, I'm going to respond in, in that fashion or I'm going to write that email so assertively like that person did, then it won't come across well because that's not how I think. That's not how I work. So it takes a while to figure out this is how I'm going to present myself. This is how I'm going to show that sense of of security or confidence or insecurity or lack of confidence when it's necessary. Just be honest. Exactly. Just
0: break down crying. Because I have no fucking idea what's going to happen. Right.
1: And right. How much do we respect doctors when they do that <laughs> right. without the crying, without the profanity? But <laughs> I try
0: to do that with my daughter. My son's still too young, but like my daughter, she asked me a question. I don't know the answer. I'm like, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. Like, go ask Siri. I have no idea. Right.
1: You know I mean?
0: But I think that that's better. Like my policy as a parent is one of total honesty within reason. You know, you can't, you have to choose your language. Right. You That's can't, true. you can't just be like blunt in a way that you would be blunt to your best friend about certain things. And there are some things you need to protect your child from. Um, like, I don't know if my six year old and I need to have like a heart to heart about the use of crystal meth in the third, Reich.: <laughs> <For laughs> Not example. for another
1: 15 years, maybe, maybe 10. I was I thinking don't know. 15 months, <laughs> I think
0: seven. I want to get, i to have that conversation at seven, which is what my father did with me. Um, <laughs> But you know what I'm saying, but, but it's, it's, it's just trying to never lie. There's a way to protect or to put like punt without lying. Mm -hmm. Even if it's a white, like, I just want my daughter and my son to know that when they're talking with me, I'm telling them the truth. That sounds very elemental, but it's hard to do as a parent. It can be tempting to just, you know, I think that maybe generationally this is changing I think there was maybe more of this when I was a kid of parents like you're too young to know that or like wriggling out of emotionally difficult talks and I say this as the father of uh, young children. Like talk to me when they're adolescent, it might be different. Right. You know?
1: Well and, and you'll be different too. And the way we parent them will be different when when they're teenagers. That's right. And uh whether we embrace or dread that moment is entirely I don't know. Different. But uh but there is that sense of kind of of, 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 figuring out what is, what is appropriate to say? You know, there's, and there's so many different schools of thought and how you work, whether you're going to shield your kid or not, whether you're going to be, you know, and, and it's, it's honesty. And of course, for better, or for worse, honesty is different for each person. Um, but as long as there's a good rapport and, and as long as they know that you're being honest and you're at least your, 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 your communication style.
0: Well, and also wanting to God, if my daughter ever listens to this or my kids listen to this when they're older, they're going to laugh at me, but it's like, As they get older and into adolescence, I would like to preserve a relationship where they don't feel like they have to hide too much from me for fear of reprisal or disappointing me. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, how do you keep, how do you keep things open? I also don't want to be the dad. Who's like the friend,
1: right? It's that fine line. I had this conversation with somebody the other day and you were talking, you know, with a with a teenage daughter and you know what that relationship's going to be like. And, um, right now. My daughter's at this amazing, adorable age, and there's we're, we're we're really connected, and I I love it. I absolutely love it, and I want it to stay that way. And I realize, okay, she'll turn 16 one day. Um, and I don't know. I don't know what she's. I mean, I and and you. I wanna. I wanna. You know, I thought that I was gonna be like firm but effusive with my emotion, um, because you know my I love my mother, but she was not. Ex- expressive with her emotion. And I think that you become, you're very much the opposite of what you, you're raised as, or very much the opposite of what your mother was. So I, my mother loves me. I'm very well aware of that, and I love her, but she wasn't very, and she isn't very expressive about that. I, on the other hand, am probably overly expressive about that. <laughs> I am kissing and saying I love you nonstop. But as a result, she's like
0: enough, Mom. Already, for God's sake. <laughs>
1: well, she's three, so she's not, she's not doing it too. So she always says, "She says I love you." Know, she's very expressive. So wait, as well. she'll be that.
0: But if this logic holds forth, then that means that she'll be the opposite of you. So I, you're, you're I, raising we'll, we'll a child. Tru- we'll see. Yeah.
1: <laughs> we'll see. Maybe we can stop it. <laughs> but you know, we'll see what happens in the future. But you know, at least now she's kind of, she's she's very she's very cute with her little brother. She's always kind of she's 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 very good with him. Trying to be very emotional or very expressive.
0: That's sweet. It's sweet. Um, why the decision to have kids? Like, I always think about this. Like, why was it important to you to have children? Do you ever second guess it? Like, do you ever... I mean, it's a, it's a hard thing to ask a parent because you have a kid. It'd be cruel to say, well, yeah, we think about, why did we do this all the time? But in the world that we live in, uh, President Trump, all the, you know, climate change, like, you, you know, the laundry list of things. It, you can at times sit there and go... Did we, am I making? Did we make the right decision? Was this was this selfless? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, is it okay? To, is it responsible to bring children into this world? I don't know.
1: I, I think it's an it's an important question, and I feel like there's a lot of people who are talking about this much more than they used to, which is important. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily look at the decision to have parent uh, to to be parent as either selfish or selfless, and I know some people do, but for me, it was. I very abstractly knew I always wanted to have children when I was ready, and yeah, I me think too. I, yeah. always,
0: I always knew like from when I was a kid, I was like, I'm going to be a dad. I knew that, but maybe I also I had a great family, like I had a happy childhood, so I, it was easy to want to replicate.
1: Yeah, I, I I think that's true, probably for a lot of people with happy childhoods. Um, I I don't know. Maybe the selfish part for me was when I was ready. You know, I wasn't ready until. I mean, I had my first kid at 35 and my second at 37. So I waited until I was a quote unquote geriatric. And so uh, that was fun. But um, I, I don't know, there was some of that, that you know, that idea of I want to achieve a certain, you know, professional milestone before I have kids. And when I got, when I realized that it was in, in writing, you can't really control that. Um, yeah. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get to a certain point. And actually, um, the day I sold my first book, the very same, like within hours of selling my first book, I had just moved to LA a few months earlier and I was working at a law firm in Koreatown and I was, you know, I was doing the traditional, you know, I was crying on the street corner and blah, blah, blah and getting very emotional, very excited. All oh, This this book had, and this career I'd been working on for years and years and years and then I called my husband who was still living in Texas and driving, literally at the moment driving to California at that time and I said, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to have a kid and it's, I don't know if that's bad or good that they're so connected, but at least they were for me.
0: You're like, I just had my book baby. Now I'm ready to have <laughs> my I'm human baby. Now I'm ready to have my own baby. <laughs>
1: but I, I realized that I was, you know, I, I it was going to happen at some point if I was lucky. And then it, it was hard to conceive, and so I knew, I, you know, we we did all sorts of, you know, artificial insemination, IUI. We never made it to IVF, but I, uh, we did a couple rounds of IUI. They didn't take. Took uh, a month off.
0: Our son was conceived via IUI. Really? Yeah.
1: Congratulations! That's yeah, rare.
0: Yeah, first try. Really? Yeah.
1: Wow! I'm impressed. Was, I feel yeah. like like you're you're a unicorn. Right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> I am actually. If, if you could see me now, <laughs> I'm dressed like one.
1: It's nice and Head colorful. to toe in
0: lavender. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It's like it's a, it's a lot, and I feel like you really can't. I feel like some people. I've talked to many people on this show, are just like, I don't want kids. Never wanted to. And that's great. Have too. no interest, and that's yeah, and that's great too. And then the people who have kids, I, most of them just always sort of figured they would. So maybe it's like programming; it's the way you're programmed from the get-go.
1: I think so, and I mean, I'd like to think that there's an embrace of both the child and you know the the child-free and the child the child-full. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, I would like to feel like there's an embrace of both because it doesn't it's a choice. You know, it's, there's no good or, or bad choice in that, and I, I do think that it's something that um, society unfairly places on women, there's a presumption. So like when I talked to you, I like, do you want to have kids like that without any sort of positive or negative connotation? Cause not everybody does. And I think it's an incredibly unfair assumption. Um, and it does, you know, it, it changes, it changes your life so completely, um, that it should be a decision that, you know, it's not about like whether or not you want it, but if you do want it, then the, when the timing, and I think the timing is key. Because some people, like if we had had kids earlier, okay, we we would probably be very different parents. And if dealing with medical situations or dealing with any sort of crisis, we would handle it differently.
0: Absolutely. I think back, I mean, my mom had her first kid when she was 22.
1: (laughs) Wow. Which
0: was the way of things, especially in the South back in the day.
1: Oh, what was the town uh, near Baton Rouge?
0: Plaquemine. Plaquemine. (laughs) (laughs) But I uh, I think of myself at age 22 and... In the context of parenthood and it just i'm you know i was a kid yeah but it's at different times completely i guess i mean 22 well, is young
1: <laughs> but there are people still having kids at 22.
0: are kids there are people who kids... have like five kids and they're 22.
1: absolutely that's crazy it's crazy people my husband's age who is not any i mean he's just five years older than me so it's not you know we're still the same generation but they're grandmothers yeah and he has It's it's called
0: hot grandma, (laughs) 43 year old grandma, right?
1: (laughs) For some. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's a good thing to be. I'd love to be a hot grandpa. Oh,
1: I think that'll happen. No,
0: it's not going to happen. I'll be too old. That's the thing. We have kids later in life. You think about grandkids, you better hope that life expectancy keeps increasing because you know, if, and, and it seems like people, women more and more having kids later and later. And if that trend continues, Then if my daughter has her kids in her late thirties, that would mean that I will be what trying to, I'm trying to, uh,
1: we're writers. We don't know math.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is putting me on the spot here. I have an idea. I would be 70. I think okay, that would be like early seventies. I guess that's. I mean... that,
1: my, that's what happened with my parents. Okay. My my mother had me at well actually, um, land, yeah, My mother lied on her on all of our birth certificates for her age because this was back in the day, and and so um, she had me at thirty six or thirty seven. It's kind of unclear, and uh, and so I had this false sense of security of when I would presumably have children myself. I mean, I had, my husband and I've been married for a long we we for a long time before we had kids. We found out on our seventh anniversary that I was pregnant. So we kind of. We slow rolled it by choice um, at first, and then, um but because of that, I just kind of yeah i 'll have kids later when i 'm ready, yeah, I definitely want them, but my mother didn't have kids later by choice, necessarily, and i 'm also the third of three, but uh but she didn't become a grandmother until she was seventy,
0: hmm.
1: no late sixties, but you know, around that time, and I know that she wanted it much earlier,
0: yeah, yeah, no that's grand- grandparenthood is awesome it 's like all the fun without any of the like grinding responsibilities, you know what I mean? I mean there's, some res- be. there's some responsibility. <laughs> yeah. It's it's like, the, it's one of, it's a great reward in life. I think would, would be that like, be able to like hang out with your grandchild, get to relive it all. And at the end of the day, give them back to your children and be like, okay, have a good night. It's like being like an aunt <laughs> an uncle. It's right, the best. Right, right. It's the best. Oh man. My grandmother had nine kids. Wow. And her last one was at age 42. All healthy. Um, she lived to be ninety-one. All of her kids are still alive.
1: That's remarkable.
0: You know what I'm saying? None of the modern, like, I, you know, none of the modern advances of medicine that that are available now were available. We just popped out nine kids,
1: Amazing. smoked
0: uh, unfiltered cigarettes like pack during her a pregnancy. Day. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, like, honestly, like early, probably she smoked like a chimney. She smoked so much that her doctor found like the beginnings of emphysema. When she was like, what, in her, I don't know when she quit, but they were basically like, if you don't quit, you're going to have emphysema. She quit cold turkey.
1: Was it hard for her?
0: Yeah. And then I think she had, I forget the exact way it all played out, but she wound up getting ulcers and had three fourths of her stomach removed.
1: Oh my Lord. And
0: so all the time that I knew her, she was this tiny woman and she could only eat small amounts and drink small amounts and live to be 91. So wow. <laughs> she would have, I don't know if you've ever seen these at the store. They don't, I don't think they sell them anywhere but they're like these little baby beers. They're like little half beers. <laughs> like like I've a...
1: seen them for sodas yeah, and like for a, little juices. It's like, yeah. Yeah, it's like a
0: tiny little Miller light. And she always had those in her fridge and she would have one a day.
1: That's what she'd allow herself.
0: She'd have, Well, that's all she could do because her stomach.
1: Oh my God. She'd
0: have her little baby beer.
1: That's really funny. Yeah. And the baby beer together. Is... <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, fun to think about. <laughs> but, you know,
0: the Catholics, it's Southern Catholics back in those days, you know, birth control because the Pope yeah. just have, you know, be fruitful and multiply.
1: I know a lot of Southern Catholics who still feel that way. Oh.
0: And like back then, no air, can, no central air.
1: No central air. You're in
0: a fucking like sweltering hot oh. house with nine, you pregnant. Yeah. Oh God.
1: Oh God. <laughs> pregnant without central air. Yeah. I mean, it sounds <laughs> serious problems. First world, but I mean, I
0: like the Southern heat, that humidity you're in a house and it's summer and there's children. I mean, I guess you just back then that's that's that was it. You just dealt with it.
1: Well, it's also it's it's the comparison. If you don't have it, if you if you right. never had it, then right. you don't know what you're missing. No climate it's control. It's just it is what it is.
0: You sit on the porch and fan yourself.
1: Fanning actually gives you a good amount of air. <laughs> it
0: does. So this is a different book. I mean, writing a memoir especially about something so difficult and personal versus writing a novel. I would imagine two different creative experiences, much the same. Like how do you characterize it?
1: Um interestingly, I feel like I, I approach them both from a very much a narrative a narrative perspective and and I I realize after writing this book that I write very much fragmentarily, you know. I didn't, I didn't realize that about myself so much before. Um,
0: Meaning, like, like in little bursts, yeah. and then you figure out where they go later.
1: Exactly. Very much jigsaw puzzling everything together, and not really. I mean, I, I always have a general idea of what I want to do, kind of very thematic, but I don't necessarily know how I'm going to get there until I write it, and then halfway through, a lot of the, you know, a lot of this becomes clear. When I, I think is is not um, uncommon, but um, I think the more difficult. The more difficult part of this is, is you know, a lot of people have, people have asked me about the kind of reliving of that part. And, and in many ways, I, that was hard, but it, it helped me. I mean, I hope that writing this book helped me become a better person parent, you know, and it enabled me to kind of work through that time. Um, you and, were working
0: as you went, that's the other thing Like you yeah. didn't, you didn't like wait for things to resolve. And then you start working on the book, like you were writing as you were in the middle of it.
1: I was, I didn't necessarily know what was going to come of, of the actual writing itself, but I was writing while, um, while I was living it. And, um, is
0: there an advantage to that? Cause like, I, I like, I think like the general idea that I have in my head is that one needs perspective yeah. in order to see clearly.
1: I think that you know that's that's a topic and that's a question that I ask myself uh, frequently and that I I brought up with a, a lot of writing teachers and just writing colleagues, and everybody has a different perspective on that. You know, on the one hand, there is that that need you know, that need for perspective, and then um, I, there's one writing teacher who I talked to about this, and she said, you know what, some people some people need that perspective to write it, and others have it already or right down they there don't need it. in the
0: trenches, it. or but there's also something to be said for writing it in real time from that emotional space and, you know, like it's like reportage or something.
1: I think at least for this book, I mean, it's, it's not so much about what happened, but it is about the concept of uncertainty and how can you write about uncertainty when you have it, right? How can you you kind of authentically, I mean, we can all try to be the best writers we can, but I mean, if you're writing, you know, if you're really trying to capture that sense of uncertainty and unease and fear and anxiety and all of the things that go along with it, you're writing it while it's happening. And so if I had waited for a wonderful resolution or a, or a terrible resolution one way or another, if I had waited for a resolution, then I would either have written a different book or I might not have written this at all.
0: Was it painful to write?
1: Yes and no. It was painful and um, it was painful to relive the kind of extreme moments and yet, the and then, and of course, you know, it was cathartic in a sense that I, I, I'm nervous about using the word catharsis. I know, I know, because of obvious cliches, and you know, I don't it's want to go overdone. down. It's yeah, overdone. It's overdone. Yeah, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. But I, I don't know that it, you know, it, in some senses, it, it was cathartic. In other senses, you know, it, it helped me at least intellectualize it and really feel conscious of the process, feel conscious of what was going on during that time, because otherwise. I think it would be much of a blur and I really wanted to, I wanted to remember, I wanted to know what was happening. I also thought it helped me just as a, as a parent, as somebody caring for this child who was going through whatever she was going through, it helped me really understand it. And I was kind of intellectualizing it at the same time, which is a little different from the catharsis component. I mean, Maybe it worked together in some sort of interesting, you know, creative braid, but it was very much made me conscious and aware of everything that was happening. And And it gives you
0: a little distance from it. I mean, not in a, not in an unfeeling way, like, or, uh, it's not a negative thing I'm saying, but like, sometimes you need to like writing can be a way of, um, getting out of your own experience a little bit, or at least, I don't know, that's not the way to put it, but it allows you a little bit of room to breathe and it allows you to see it from um, an aerial view somehow. That's you have,
1: interesting. You
0: have to, I mean, you have to, I don't know, rather than being down in the weeds, um, in the moment, which can, you know, everything happens so quickly and, you know, the interior of our brains and thought processes, I mean, it's, just, it's, a, it's a mess. You're moving from one thing to the next and can't, your brain is just chattering at you all the time and, uh, writing long form fiction or long form nonfiction cuts against that a little bit. It slows you down.
1: Right. I I completely agree with that, and I hadn't really thought of it in that in that way before. I mean, you know, in so many ways, you think of it as being so close to it, but I think that that's that's true. I mean, it does give you some distance so that you can you can understand it. You know, and if you can understand, then you can handle it. You can deal with it. I mean, what I, I I think the biggest difference for me, at least, and I'm I mean, the book comes out in a few weeks, so I'm I'm a lot more nervous about the, this component of it, the publicity talking about it. Um, I'm, I'm an extrovert. So I like being out there. I like talking to other people. I like events. I like readings and, and interviews and things like this. It's, it's, it's usually fun for me. This, I don't suspect. I totally will be that.
0: I totally And so
1: it's kind of works against the grain of wanting to, you know, I already feel awkward about as many writers do about self-promotion and, and, you know, publicity and things like that. But when you're, you know, you're dealing with something that is so personal and that it is, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to protect her. I want to protect I get it. I get it. that. And so I end up wanting to talk about, well, this is the concept of uncertainty. <laughs> <laughs> this is right. how I approached just it Theoretically just
0: tap dance as much as you yeah. can.
1: And so I'm, I, I think that's going to be at least a bigger, a bigger difference. And then, um, I'll happily get back to my You'll next get better. novel,
0: but this is, but this is this the first interview you've done?
1: This is the first interview. I mean, I've, I've spoken to a class that read it already, um, like a creative writing class, but um, this is the first official interview I've had about this See, book.
0: So this is practice. And by the time you get down the road a little bit, you'll, you'll, you'll be refined, <laughs> right? You'll get better at it. I would imagine like better at talking about it. So what are you
1: it. saying about this? No,
0: I'm glad I'm, ca- I'm glad I'm catching you early, A, before you're too practiced and B, uh, before you're burned out, because I find that whenever I talk to authors, or not whenever, a lot of the time when i talk to authors who are on big media tours if you get them too far down the road and they've done too many interviews it
1: does sound canned they're burned candy. out yeah. or they're
0: just so practiced at answering mm-hmm. questions that it you just you wind up feeling like you're getting a speech instead of a conversation
1: no that's true i mean that's true my my husband jokes about like the certain parts of, the certain questions i was asked with my first book and like the same the same passages that i would read and it's like kind of this running joke in our house about going back and forth and back and forth about the same line, you know? And, um, and so, so yeah.
0: Well, uh, when does it publish
1: April 25th?
0: Okay. Well, this will come out after that, I would bet. So it'll be, it'll be out and available when people listen to this. Uh, are you done with two kids? I mean, is that I'm your person. You, you have yeah. your two. You have I had your, my two. You got your set. I have <laughs> my set.
1: <laughs> I have a boy and a girl, and if I had two girls, I would be done also.
0: Oh, man. Um, and are you working on anything else? Are you just going to do this tour, or are you already on to the next book?
1: Um, I am. I, I learned from publishing my from, after my first book that I need to be deeply immersed into my next project when I have a book come out. I wasn't with the first. Um, And, uh, that, that played with me. Why? Um, well, for starters, we're writers. And so you need to be doing what we do and that's to write and also feel like I'm continuing something. And so I wanted to, it wasn't just for the answer of like, what are you, you know, what are you working on next? It was more like, I want to actually feel it and not just say it. Um, and it, it helped ground me as well. Um, at that point I had, I was, I had worked so much. I was working at a law firm, so I was working kind of from eight to eight, I was living at my in-laws at the time. Cause I just moved to LA and working on the book to like, you know, three, four in the morning. So I wasn't sleeping and which kind of answered the question of why I was having trouble conceiving. But, um, <laughs> at the same time, I wonder why. um, why? I wasn't able to really, you know, once I turned in that final manuscript, I was like, okay, I, I can just take a break and writing is what grounds me. And so I, I didn't want to take another break. And so with this, I was very eager to get back to fiction. Um, and so I, uh, after my after my first novel, after my first book came out, I I had started so many different projects, and none of them really, kind of, none of them had you know traction. And I I started this new novel in theory, um, maybe over a year ago, but it's historical. And so I was doing a lot of research for the past year. And so I've, you know, sketched out some, some scenes, but I'm very eager to get back to that. And I'm also doing some, some screenwriting since as um, one does, as one does in, in LA, Angeles. right. And I love it actually. I absolutely love it.
0: Yeah. Well, what, in what historical period is the novel setting? Can I ask?
1: Sure. Um, it's, it's 19th century America okay. for the most part, although I, I I, uh, part of it is set in Chile as well.
0: Oh, wow. Have you been there?
1: I haven't. I've been to the other countries around there. Well, this is <laughs> a perfect
0: I, excuse for you to go to Chile. Without I your feet. Fa- just like leave the kids behind. And I'm, I, take
1: off. <laughs> I'm very much hoping to go to Chile in the next year.
0: <laughs> it's research. It is it's research. It's right all off. tax deductible. Exactly.
1: <laughs> exactly. So you,
0: you sound like you were staying up late, sleeping none. A, you have like a burning desire to be a writer, but you're also a really hard worker. You type a, like you, how do you do it? Do you, I am
1: so type a
0: same time every day you write ritualized or is it,
1: I would like to think so, but right now, because I'm still like between book one and book two, I had two kids and, um, in a very cramped living space at the moment. And so, and still kind of in, in that time, in that time period, I also kind of really was adjusting to a new city and knew everything. So I pretty much all the life, um, the life, big life changes, life, you know, birth, death, movement, moving, buying a place, you know, everything. Um, and so I,
0: wait, there's death too. uh, uh,
1: That's another story. Okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but it was, it's more along the lines of, I, I desperately seek that routine. Um, but I don't have a good one at the moment because I'm still, you know, I'm still in the, I have a 10 month old and, um, I'm kind of adjusting to two kids, which is, Double the fun um, no joke, <laughs> 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 and I love it, but it's also very um very very different and very you know hard to get back onto the to the routine and into the thing and so as soon as um when I finish with kind of the media and with everything with this book, I'm hoping to to get down to a routine that said, I'm very type a and so i I like to i mean i I have to approach my writing very much like I would approach like a like a job in the sense that okay these are the hours that I'm going to allow myself. Now I'm very hard on myself in the sense that okay if I'm not writing during this, that time period that guilt. I'm guilty. Yeah, I feel like a, okay I wasted this time and now with kids it's like okay I'm paying somebody. So it's not just that I'm not making income necessarily if I'm not if I'm working during this time but I'm also paying somebody now. So I'm pay, I'm, I'm paying somebody for me not to make money.
0: It's <laughs> <That's> a wonderful <laughs> and arrangement. And hang out with my kids. Yes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No. It's tough. You, and you have to be kind of become a person who can write any old time because you have to steal whatever hours you can because you do. Kids' schedules are unpredictable. Family life is unpredictable. Like it's it's hard to be rigid about it. I mean, I know some people pull it off, but
1: I'm trying to get better about it. I'm, yeah. I, I I'm trying to. I, I'm pretty rigid, but I, I'm I, I'm as rigid as you can be. Do I you don't... do
0: word count? Like, do you hold yourself to word counts and that kind of thing?
1: Um, I do, but I have failed for the last. 15 months for that 15 <laughs> so. years
0: last couple decades I've been coming up short but
1: I like to I mean I think when I'm when I you know when I kind of clear my schedule and I say okay I'm gonna work exclusively on this I think I've been kind of spreading myself too thin lately I've been between a lot of different projects on top of obviously um
0: no the transition I know there's excuses. no
1: excuse <laughs> I'm gonna self-flagellate so, now yeah, you feed
0: your children <laughs> oh um do you what was I gonna ask you something to do with schedule. I can't think I had it while you were saying that. And then I lost it. But, uh, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like you're somebody who is going to get her work done no matter what. There's no stopping you. Right.
1: I'd like to think (laughs) so.
0: (laughs) I mean, with all this that you have going on, it's exciting and it's, uh, it's great to meet you.
1: It's so great to meet you too. Yeah.
0: I'm glad I got you early and I wish you all the best. Um, both with this tour, handling all the press and media, which I'm sure it's going to be, the demands are going to be extreme. All the different reporters surrounding you, <laughs> <laughs> asking you questions.
1: Which happens with writers on a yes. daily basis, you know. The
0: flashbulbs <laughs> popping. I know what you're in for just weeks The literary
1: now. red carpet. Yes, <laughs> it's
0: going to be extreme. But uh, congratulations, best of luck on the historical novel, and uh, congrats on your family.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you.
0: All right, ladies and gentlemen, there you go. That is Elizabeth L. Silver. Her new memoir is called The Tincture of Time, available now from Penguin Press. You can find her on the Internet. Her web address is ElizabethLSilver.com. She's on Facebook. She's on Twitter. Her Twitter handle is at ElizLSilver. She's on, uh, what, Instagram? Is she on Instagram? She's all over the place. You can find her on the uh, Internet. ElizabethLSilver.com. The Tincture of Time. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app, available in the app store of your choice. It's free. Best way to listen, all episodes of this podcast are free. Every single one. The app is free. Everything's free. It's a listener-supported show. So, uh, yeah, man, I don't know. I'm just uh, in a political mood. I've been consuming incredible amounts of political news over the past week. I think all of us have been affected by this, some more so than others. But even even to a casual observer, last week was essentially a year's worth of, of news packed into a week. So the volume and the intensity of what is happening right now for people who like this stuff and pay attention to this stuff is... Highly unusual, like Twilight Zone nightmare quality. Just get him out. It's a danger to the world. All these people on the, you know, in the media trying to psychoanalyze Trump—it's irresistible. Like, what in the, what is going through his head? And it's like the best—it's just nothing. There's some, there's nothing happening. And just in every situation, his how do I dominate? How do I dominate this person? This situation? How do I win? How do I dominate? How do I impose my will? Make the other person suffer. Right? Or something like that? It's a fucking mystery. So if there really are 70 indictments or something like that, if Pence and uh, Jeff Sessions and Paul Ryan... I've, I've heard rumors of all these things. Trump's kids. I've, uh, deep Twitter is even saying that the uh, Republican Party writ large could be implicated... I guess, like, as an organization, like, you know, like, penalized for some sort of criminal uh, activity with probably with regard to money. Like, what happens to the Republican brand, the party, if this really does go down? Like, how does it survive? And what will happen with the Sean Hannity's of the world and the, you know, all the congressional leaders who carried water for this guy? Like, is there a penalty for them? Are they just going to say he was set up? Or are they gonna apologize and go away? We can't let we can't let them revise history or weasel out of it. Like what the fuck? There's gotta be some accountability. Fix this country up. <laughs> Seriously though. I feel intent on this.